That song by The Cure has, has always been one of my favorites. Um, but let me start by saying this. It has been a few weeks since Peter left off in his first Peter series. He left us in chapter 2, and we'll pick up from there next week. But today I wanted to spend a little bit of time on a concept that was raised in chapter 2. And uh, just dig in a little bit on that and review a couple of important things that Peter has discussed in his series so far. You've probably seen this by now. If you haven't, you're way behind. So you've got to start watching the sermon series because you've got to catch up. Um, so you've, you've, we've all seen this and Peter has talked about the gestalt shift or gestalt shift, however you say it, that uh, is associated with this image. If you're seeing it for the first time, you might see a young lady, you might see an old lady. Um, But here's an image that you may or may not have seen that I thought was kind of funny. So the bartender says to this lady, can I see your ID? Wait, never mind. Wait, yeah, I need to see your ID. Wait. I thought that this cartoon did a good job of pointing out that both images are always there, right? Sometimes we think about a paradigm shift as a permanent and one-time thing. But I think it's more like this. Oh, wait, I, wait, I see... I see it, but wait, no, I, I don't see it. Well, I see that. Wait, I just saw this. We're constantly drawn back into our old paradigms because they're so ingrained in us. We're creatures of habit. It's important to remember that one image doesn't disappear or go away when you focus on the other. They're both always there. I think this is similar to what it's like to live in our world knowing God. And in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter calls us to be servants of God. So this morning, I'd like to explore a little deeper what that might look like on a day-to-day basis for us. In 1 Peter, chapter 2, Peter says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. I really like the New Jerusalem translation of this. I'm going to read it for you. I didn't put it up there, though. It is God's will that by your good deeds, you should silence the ignorant talk of fools. You are slaves of no one except God. So behave like free people and never use your freedom as a cover for wickedness. The beauty of the incarnation is that Jesus showed us how to live simply by doing it. I grew up in a time when we had religion class in public school. I think I've told you that before. Um, Whatever your opinions are on that, I did memorize the 23rd Psalm as a result of that class. And it has comforted me many times in my life. For many years, though, I misunderstood the beginning. And I think that my misunderstanding of the beginning is a great picture of the gestalt shift that Peter has been talking about. The 23rd Psalm starts... The first line tells us, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I apparently, when memorizing, I wasn't paying attention to punctuation, so I removed the semicolon in my brain. And to me, the way I understood the passage was, the Lord is my shepherd, whom I shall not want, right? So, um, These are obviously two very different statements. The Lord is my shepherd, so I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, whom I shall not want. But I've I've since understood that the first statement to be true, 
But I've noticed a lot of times in my life that my misunderstanding is true as well. And often in my earthly flesh, I do not want God's mercy. I don't want his grace. I don't want his peace. I don't want his joy. I don't want his hope. Often it's when it's inconvenient for me, but a lot of times it's also when, it's, when it doesn't line up with what I want for someone else. Then I remember what Peter's been saying. I love this statement that he made in one of his sermons recently, that my life is not my own private possession. It isn't something I can keep in a box and keep to myself. I mean, it, I can but it isn't something I should keep to myself. There's a certain truth to my misunderstanding for us humans who strive for a relationship with God here in our space and time. And I believe it's a love story that often looks like a tragedy, but we'll come back to that. That Cure song has always been one of my favorites. It's most likely written about how another person makes the writer feel better, right? However, it's always been a reminder to me how God the Father does this for us. Whenever I'm alone with you, you make me feel like I am home again. You make me feel like I am whole again. You make me feel like I'm young again, like I'm fun again, like I'm free again, like I'm clean again. Whenever I'm alone with you, Lord, I feel things that I don't feel on my own, when left to my own devices. Continually, Jesus drew away from people, daily life activities, and the demands of his ministry to be alone with the Father and pray. Jesus' solitude and silence is a major theme throughout the Gospels. His ongoing intimate relationship with his Abba, his Father, his Daddy, is, was the source of, of his compassion, still is, wisdom and power that we see on every page of the Gospels. It's also repeatedly his stated purpose to do the will of his Father here on earth. He recharged and refocused with the Father. We're called to do the same thing as Christians in this world. He did not arm himself with something to use against others, to wield against others in this time alone with the Father. Nor are we called to do that. When I'm alone with the Father, I find that love replaces hate. I find that joy replaces fear. That peace replaces anxiety. Patience and forbearance replace hostility. I find that kindness replaces assholishness. I find goodness replaces, I don't know, badness. Faithfulness or faith replaces faithlessness. Gentleness replaces brutality. Self-control replaces wantonness. Empathy replaces apathy. Hope replaces hopelessness. I'm going to let you in on a dirty little secret. We're all both sides of this coin. Now, if you've paid attention at all to anything Peter's said over the last 15 years, you already know that. But both realities are alive in us simultaneously. Much like Peter described working through Romans, our old earthen vessel, our tupas, he called it, the empty clay vessel, is filled, it gets filled with both not God, which is sin, and with God, which is love. 
If you look at your reflection in a mirror, you can choose to see the good or the bad, right? When we look at our reflection, we choose to see what is staring back at us, the Mises or the Jesus. Just because the other doesn't come into focus, it doesn't mean that it's gone. I was going to hand out mirrors to everyone at this point. The problem with a mirror for humans is, well, we don't want to put it down. (laughs) We like to look in the mirror. We don't want to put it down and do the hard work that it exposes that might need done. We'd rather look in the mirror and focus on the good things. Um, I can't tell that my hair's receding when I look in a mirror, so I love it. If it's a mirror behind me, I don't want to see it. Some of you are saying receding. It's gone. (laughs) For me, it's receding. See, I choose to see it that way. Um, the, The hard work that we need to do is not saving yourself by trying harder not to sin. That is not the hard work that we're called to do. The hard work is not saving someone else. The hard work is choosing God or love over not God, also called sin. Over and 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 over over again. When you fail, and you will, you don't undo the work of the cross. You don't undo this work when you fail in that endeavor. This work is finished. It's complete. Amen. When we look at ourselves, we tend to focus on or sometimes see only one side. That doesn't mean our other side is gone. Our neighbors may be seeing our other side at the very same time that we're seeing the side we choose to see. In 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter stuffed the two verses we looked at a little bit ago between instructions to submit to your authorities and leaders. Well, I may submit to my leaders and my authorities, but I certainly don't need my worldly leaders to show me how to live. Nor does Peter suggest that we need that. Bible Peter, not Peter Hyatt. (laughs) But nor does he. Um... I have a, it's really confusing when your pastor's named Peter (laughs) and he's teaching through Peter. I have a leader to show me how to live. That's Jesus Christ. He is my example. He is my model. And God was gracious enough to send me a helper as well. All of you have the same helper, the Holy Spirit in this world, to know how to live. As John Perch so eloquently stated once, contrary to what our current culture tells us, People are not toxic. I've talked about this before. I'll probably talk about it again. But relationships between people, well, they can be quite toxic. And now back to our love story. One of my favorite Christian writers is Donald Miller. While we disagree on many things, we agree on more. In his book, Searching for God Knows What, he masterfully describes how he sees the, the iconic balcony scene in Romeo and Juliet as a perfect picture of the gospel. He admits that he may be reading some of his ideas into the story. That's one of the things I like about him as a writer. He's willing to admit that, but still state them. Willing to admit that he may be wrong. And I'm not trying to get you to believe the comparison is a perfect analogy this morning. Don't get hung up in the perfection of the analogy. Sometimes it's just nice to see something and not try to explain it or make it fit, but rather just sit with it and let it be. 
the things that you see in life that if you did grab your phone real quick and Google it, Google doesn't have an answer for. Or the answer's just flat wrong, right? Those things are nice to sit with once in a while. So in Act 2, Scene 2, the, in the famous balcony scene of Romeo and Juliet, Romeo stands below Juliet's balcony, marveling at her beauty. Not knowing he's there, Juliet speaks, wondering why Romeo must be a Montag and she a Capulet. She thinks a name is simply a word, and it would be easy for Romeo to take a new name and therefore not be forbidden to her. Romeo reveals himself, agreeing to forsake the name Romeo if he can love her, if he can have her love. Juliet warns him that as a Montag, he'll be killed if he's spotted with her, but Romeo doesn't care. After much discussion, the two swear their love for each other and agree to be married. It's kind of what happens in the scene. Donald Miller says these things about scripture and poetry and this particular scene. Perhaps the reason scripture includes so much poetry in and outside the narrative, so many parables and stories, so many visions and emotional letters, is because it is attempting to describe a relational break, man kind, tragically experienced with God, and a disturbed relational history that man has since had, and furthermore, a relational dynamic man must embrace in order to have relational intimacy with God once again, thus healing himself of all the crap he gets into while looking for a relationship that makes him feel whole. Maybe the gospel of Jesus, in other words, is all about our relationship with Jesus rather than about ideas. Becoming a Christian might look more like falling in love than baking cookies. Baking cookies, you follow steps. Everybody knows when you bake, you follow the steps, right? That's not the time for improv. You, you follow the steps or the cookies are going to, whatever you're baking is going to be terrible if you don't. You just can't. You just can't. But maybe becoming a Christian and being a Christian in this world looks a bit more like falling in love than baking cookies. This is Donald Miller again. It is somewhat amazing to me that all of Christianity, all our grids and mathematics and truths and different groups subscribing to different theological ideas boils down to our knowing Jesus and his knowing us. It's good stuff. Um, I won't bore you with a lot more, but I'm going to read a little bit more. Um, so in the balcony scene, Juliet may be considered the bard's Christ figure, according to Miller, and Romeo the embodiment of the church, thus presenting Shakespeare's opinion of a Christian conversion experience. I realize it sounds far-fetched and that I may be reading theology into a play that is simply a love story, but upon closer examination, we see Shakespeare borrowing exclusively from the themes of Christ's love from the church, for the church, even going so far as to leave his own story, that of Romeo's wanting of Juliet, to enter completely into the unique complexities of Christ's interaction with the church. You will have to remember that at the time of Shakespeare's popularity, everybody had an opinion about salvation. Many scholars believe the enmity between the Montagues and the Capulets, for example, represented the tension between Protestants and Catholics at the time. This is Elizabethan time, however you say it. This view holds merit because at the time Shakespeare wrote the play, tension between the Protestants and Catholics had risen to a fever pitch on the streets outside the poet's home. He was born and worked during the reign of Elizabeth. This set him in an England in which the religious tension had yet to subside. 
Not unlike the tension that exists today in Northern Ireland, these two groups were at odds, their faith connected to their ideas about God and heaven, their political leanings, and their identities. It makes a great deal of sense that from the struggle of Catholics against Protestants and Protestants against Catholics, Shakespeare may have molded his idea of a tension between the Montagues and the Capulets. Reading the balcony scene through the lens of an Elizabethan audience reveals what I think is a powerful double entendre, one that suggests not only a sort of negotiation of love between Juliet and Romeo, but a kind of invitation from Christ to the church, to you and me, walking us, as it were, on the heart path a person would need to traffic in order to know Christ and be saved from his broken nature. I think it's insightful um, musings, really. I'm not, again, trying to convince you that you need to become a Donald Miller worshiper by any means, but um, it's, it's interesting to see the play that way, in my opinion. And what I thought about when I read the scene, I finally read Romeo and Juliet. It's very short. You could read it today if you want to read it. Um, you might not understand it, but you could read it. Um, Who's toxic in the story, right? If you look at the story and you figure out who's toxic, there's a lot of toxic figures in the story. I think the Montag family would say that it's the Capulet family. The Capulet family would say it's the Montags. Juliet's parents would definitely say, Romeo, right? He's toxic. Stay away from him. Gonna wreck our whole thing we got going on here. Romeo's parents would say that it's Juliet. Is there anyone left in the story who's not toxic to someone? Well, I don't think there is. I went recently on a backpacking trip with my brother to West Virginia. We go every year, and it's a lot of fun. Um, In West Virginia, we saw signs everywhere that were kind of startling to me, even though I grew up in Ohio, which is the middle of nowhere. West Virginia is the middle, middle, middle of nowhere. Um, These signs would be on the the the, uh, street posts as you drive by on the highway and they would say repent at the top follow Jesus or hell at the bottom uh, with flames consuming hell and they were all over the place and I remember just kind of being taken aback Um, I was thankful for the signs because they they launched some great discussions between my brother and I who's not a believer Um, but it reminded me of some classic imagery of a, of a great divide between mankind and God, spanned by the cross as a bridge. Have you guys seen this image where there's the chasm, there's God on one side and there's humanity on the other, and it's usually an empty chasm, and then the cross fills in the chasm so that you can walk across, which... To most people, that would be a wonderful thought. To me, it led me to a memory that has stuck with me my entire life. Um, I actually saw an image of that image. So again, mankind, God, chasm in between. I saw one with an active stoked fire down below the chasm, right? So it reminded me of those signs in West Virginia. Like, you got to really understand the severity of the situation here. Repent, follow Jesus, or hell. Um, As you may be aware, because I've talked about it before, I read a lot of Stephen King books. I've read 29 of his 60, uh, uh, his 60 plus so far, and I'm working to read all 60. 
before I die. Uh, and uh, it, I'd say that so I can say the next thing. One of, but one of the most offensive things that I've ever encountered in my life didn't come from one of his books. It was a tract that I was handed. I was given a tract in a moment that I would describe as completely devoid of human interaction. I was handed a tract and someone walked away and I read it and I got mad and I didn't have anyone to get mad at because they walked away. They didn't even have an interest in my response to the tract, right? They just wanted to leave it with me. Tracks, I'm sorry if you use them. It's okay. I'm not going to, I'm not going to attack you, um, but I am going to attack them. Uh, tracks are not interpersonal. This idea of handing someone a statement and hoping that they're going to connect with a loving God is, it's not a good plan. They're not interpersonal. You would never use a tract in a relationship with a person. I hope. <laughs> third grade. <laughs> okay, maybe third grade. Maybe third grade. Uh, if you would, it's likely really affecting your relationship with that person. So you might want to reconsider. As a matter of fact, maybe we're all more guilty of it than we think with our bumper stickers, yard signs, and t-shirts. None of those are one-sided, by the way. I didn't feel like the person who handed it to me cared for me at all. A tract is not a solution for a relationship issue. And neither is this. Neither is this. I apologize to whoever made it. I hope you're not watching online. <laughs> I found it in the lobby from one of our conferences. It's the truth of Christian universalism, simple as ABC. This is all you got to know. And then it's, it's all wrapped up right there. So there you go. Good luck. Have fun. Um, I won't see you later. This isn't a solution, nor is a tract. A, I, the answer in life is not to reduce our relationships to short belief statements and dismiss anyone who disagrees with us. This is not going to work, folks. It just isn't going to work. I got a text from an old friend of mine um, on Christmas. I hear from him every Christmas. That's about the only time we connect. I love him dearly. He had three cats when I knew him. I used to help take care of them. The last of the cats passed away this year. So he sent me a text that just said, Buddy passed away this year. Thank you so much for the time that you spent taking care of them. And at least they're all together now at peace. And I thought, yeah, they, they are, I guess. If, if you're the type of person who believes that cats can go to heaven. <laughs> I don't know about that myself. Sorry, Mindy. I'm just not sure, or Sasha, or any of my cat lovers in the room, Lily. I'm not sure they have what it takes, but I do have the ABCs of universalism, so maybe, maybe they can. Maybe they can go to heaven. Um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, we're going to move to another image that you guys are quite familiar with at this point. Coffee on stage is a bad idea, by the way. Water, much better. Jesus' work on the cross, it was once for all. For eternity. Eternity with God is made certain for us by the death and resurrection of Christ. That's what we call atonement. Romeo and Juliet are together in peace. Yeah, but they're dead. <laughs> they are together in peace. Buddy 
Stella and uh, the other cat, I don't remember its name now, uh, are all together in peace, right? But they're dead. Fortunately, we don't have to wait to die to take part in a relationship with God. You see, the word atonement means reparation or expiation for sin. I might get in trouble for this statement, but I think it's clear that it doesn't mean the annihilation of sin here on earth. I think it's clear. (laughs) I don't know how. I feel like I could win that argument. Um, Expiation meaning the act of making amends or reparation for guilt or wrongdoing. The atonement. Reparation or expiation for our sin. Oh, thank you. The good news, the gospel. You know, it's having, let me see what I have. I don't have any money. Having no money in your pocket on stage is a terrible idea. (laughs) Just waiting to see if I... (laughs) Uh, The good news, the gospel, is that the work is done to repair the relationship between us and God both in eternity and here and now in our space-time. The bridge is in place, and it is the cross. But relationships take work, and that work is not finished. At any given moment in our world, we can work for the wages of sin, which is not God. Sin is not God. And the opposite of that, the opposite of sin, is God, love, all those good things that you think of. Or we can work for the wages of God. We're simply called to just say yes to God's promptings. We are not repeatedly saying yes to the original work. We're living through the original work and saying yes to our Father, which is saying no to sin which is not our Father. Our response is not once for all. Sin is still very much here, and we continuously choose it or not it. I really love the early church, and I'm particularly fond of one creed, and it's the Apostles' Creed. It's, as John again He used a term on Christmas Eve, I think it was, that I am adopting into my everyday language now. The Apostles' Creed was pre-empire. It was pre-empirical church. It was, the point of it was to find unity, not to clarify differences. It was to find unity. The point was not to unify around a series of statements or beliefs and shut out those who share different statements and beliefs. The point was to unify around commonality. Inclusive community has become such a tough word. It's become divisive. It, it's come to mean only a select few, depending on which side of whatever it is you stand on. Assuming there's only two sides to any issue. I don't, I don't know any issue that has only two sides. What we stand for at the sanctuary is truly the inclusion of everyone. Truly. One of the best ways we can come together and grow together as a body is to serve together. What we'd like to do this year is help people to connect with organizations that folks in our body are already connected to, to serve. We'd like to just be a connection point for that, to facilitate that. 
like to be connectors of people to help support the orgs that you are passionate about. There's a few that I can name. I wrote them down so I don't forget a couple. Um, Christ's Body Ministries. They've already been here and spoke. Um, we, we, you guys did an amazing job. At, I, we filled a closet. We filled a van full of clothing for the homeless folks at Christ's Body. So thank you so much for that. That was a wonderful outpouring. It was fantastic. Um, they have more things that we can do. If you're interested on, in any of these things, you can always pull myself, Peter, or John aside and, and talk to us. You can email any one of us. You're welcome to email me, text me anytime. Um, I love to hear from you guys. But we have Beyond Home. Jen and Alan did the Christmas Palooza event this year, and we raised some money for them. I'd like to be more connected with them next year, potentially going into Thanksgiving and Christmas again, so that we could sponsor some homes, some houses, give some meals for Thanksgiving, help with packages, presents for Christmas time. Um, Alternatives Pregnancy Center. Maureen isn't here with us today, but she's here with us always and will always be. I love our precious Maureen, and she loves that ministry. And so if you want to get involved with a ministry that helps to provide alternatives for young ladies that find themselves in an uncomfortable situation, probably, um, you can reach out to me. You can reach out to Maureen, I'm sure, directly as well. I don't Sorry, Maureen, if you get an outpouring. But um, you can reach out to me and I can get you connected with her. Uh, another, another guy that's not here today that's just a dear member of our congregation, Brett Davidson, heads up a group called Rebels Redemption in which he works to help folks transition from prison back into life, which I can't even imagine what that's like. Um, I would never make it out of prison. <laughs> I, would be, I would be murdered in prison for sure. <laughs> but, uh, um, but I'm so thankful that he's interested in doing that. And he, he's, an amazing, he's a, an amazing, passionate person when it comes to that ministry. And if you want to help to support a ministry like that, you could reach out to me and let me know. Another good way to come together and grow together is to gather together. We do that here on Sundays, and I'm so thankful that you guys are here every Sunday. Um, it's amazing. It's amazing. Another way that I'm hoping we can experiment with that this year is the classes that John is offering. We've offered, uh, we've tried to offer a hybrid in-person and online offering. What we would like to attempt, I hope, <laughs> haven't run this by John yet. I mean, we'd, we talked about it a while ago, but is to have some remote locations throughout town. So if there's a lot of you in Lakewood and you would like to participate in the class, if you can find a, if we can help find a facilitator for the class, you guys could gather together, maybe eat together light. It doesn't have to be a big meal. It doesn't have to be a big commitment. Can be if you want it to be. And um, you guys could do the class that week at a remote location. And that's something that we're hoping to try out. So I hope that that will work and uh, we will invite you into that with us. But the bottom line is no matter how you connect, no matter how we connect, we're living a love story. And, you know, our job is simply to just say yes to God's promptings in our day-to-day. Sorry, Mike, I didn't even open it. Well, we're going to do a very unconventional communion song today. It's pretty upbeat, but it's an upbeat event. It's not, it's not a sad, I mean, it. There's sad elements, but it, it is an upbeat event. So 
I hope that doesn't throw you too much. If you're the type that wants a quiet, reflective um, communion time, the the song following this one will be. So if you want to take your elements back to your seat with you, you could do that, and then you could partake uh, during the quiet. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you, freely given to you. Take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood. Drink of it, all of you. I'm going to get the colors right here. And do it in remembrance of me. Jesus demonstrated how to live. How to truly live. He didn't just talk about it. He showed us. All are welcome to the Lord's table at the sanctuary. We invite you to come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine. The brown cups are wine. The blue cups are juice. Both are the blood of Christ. And a reminder of God's desire to be with you and for you to be with him. It's a love story, baby. Just say yes. about 
Well, Romeo, take me somewhere we can be alone. I'll be waiting. All there's left to do is run. You'll be the prince and I'll be the princess. It's a love story, baby. Just say yes. Romeo, save me. They're trying to tell me how to feel. This love is difficult, but it's real. Don't be afraid. We'll make it out of this mess. It's a love story, baby. Just say yes. Our church in America has historically opened the doors and waited for all of us to come inside to join them in what they're doing. I don't think that's what we're about here at the sanctuary. I don't believe in that old, tired model anymore. My encouragement to you is to keep spending alone time with God. Just say yes to his promptings, his invitation to join in his love story. And then let us know how you're saying yes. Hopefully, part of saying yes is to gather with us on Sundays and in other social groups that we have, or maybe serve together for uh, organizations that we're connected to through someone in the body. But just share what God's doing in your life when you do that, so that those who are interested in or called to can join you, and we can help connect, make those connections. So in Jesus' name, be the gospel. Amen.